It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. This is episode 210. This is our Q&A segment from our pain and rehab team's recent two-day seminar last week in Miami, Florida. Yep, it's a late upload. Normally, we put these up on Wednesdays, but uh, I've not been feeling well this week, and so better late than never. I definitely wanted to get this out to you guys before next week's podcast goes up, so here we are. Soon, you'll be hearing the voices of Dr. Derek Miles, Dr. Cameron Clouser, Dr. Charlie Dixon, and Dr. Austin Brocky. but first, some announcements. This podcast is brought to you by Pioneer Belts, trusted by some of the world's strongest athletes. Choose Pioneer for your weightlifting belts and accessories. Pioneer has belts to fit your needs, whether it's a 13-millimeter thick, 4-inch wide lever belt for powerlifting, a Velcro hybrid belt for CrossFit, and everything in between. They'll also custom-make you a belt right to your specifications and important announcement we're going to be doing a giveaway with these guys next week we're going to announce the details on our podcast next wednesday that's february 1st and they'll also be announcing the details on their instagram page which is pioneer underscore fit so you got to be following them anyway to uh, participate in this giveaway for a custom pioneer belt i was told the only restrictions are no exotic materials so no snakeskin or something like that. But uh, in any case, yeah, they are going to custom make one of you lucky winners a belt. And uh, again, we'll announce those details next Wednesday. But you're going to have to be following them on Instagram anyway. So check them out. Uh, in any case, this audio uh, is not the best. I'm going to come up and just say that uh, here on episode 210 of the Barbell Medicine Podcast. The gym was quite noisy and we didn't have our best equipment out there to record the audio. Uh, so it is passable. Uh, I've listened to it a few times, did my best with the editing and uh, some really great content here. So everything from um, what is the role of nutrition in rehab, technique and injury risk, what's the relationship there and much, much more. Um, really a great Q&A, but uh, I just 100% wanted to warn you guys that the audio was not quite up to our standards when we record here in the studio, but it is definitely something you can make your way through and uh, hopefully you guys like it. So without any further ado, let's get into it. As purely a coach, not a doctor or PT, how or should knowledge of biomechanics influence pain management strategies, if at all? But it's going to influence it to some degree, but it's not that technique doesn't matter. It's how much does it matter? And if I am trying to get an individual to just move and be active, I'm likely going to be a lot more permissive of what technical components go into anything I'm going to limit or coach out. I, I don't mind as much if that individual has a rounded back when they deadlift or they have some increased knee valgus. And to be honest, even on the performance side of things, I don't know that uh, we need to be the sticklers to the degree that we typically are when it comes to technique. Uh, there's a very wide variation on what constitutes normal and change changing technique is one of the ways that you can manage someone who's having symptoms but i think applying a very narrow range of what is acceptable technique is probably not the best way to do that if anything if an individual is experiencing pain it's like finding the one that works for them yeah i mean i definitely think that's probably a good way to look at it mostly because at the end of the day like sometimes we just need to worry about them actually moving compared to getting super technical with it and at the end of the day, if we're starting to put these constraints, especially in a rehab situation, like they already may not want to move anyways. 
So now we're going to say, oh, you know, you have to be perfect in this regard, perfect in this regard. Like, why are we already putting these limitations on them before we even see what they do potentially? Um, so yeah, I, mean, I definitely think, you know, it can have some influence, I guess, but it's also not like something you need to like strictly focus on. Um, so yeah, I, mean, I definitely agree with a lot of that. Yeah. How much focus should be on nutrition, protein, total calories, limitations in alcohol in the context of rehab? It depends. Uh, I, it, if it is an athlete who is experiencing a BSI and there's red S involved, uh, it's not my scope of practice, but I most certainly want a nutritionist involved in that. Uh, do I think that I need to be having in-depth conversations about you running a hundred calorie deficit while in rehab? Nah, that doesn't matter as much. If you're telling me you're drinking half a bottle of vodka every evening after your training session, we might need to have some behavior conversations, but guess what? Uh, I'm probably not the best guy to talk to about that. But if I can at least like get some entry point and ask if there is someone who you would be willing to talk to about it, then I can try and go down that road. But you know, in the grand scheme of things, I am not a nutritionist. I do not pretend to be a nutritionist and I am comfortable having some very broad strokes conversations, but if it is anything specific, uh, we are probably outside of my scope. What I would say is this is an instance where it is very good to have a network of individuals who you can call on, get yourself an RD friend and one who you can trust with questions. Uh, I punt to the barbell medicine staff for nutrition quite often. And it, it is that knowing where your limits are. Yeah, I mean, I actually share a lot of clients, rehab and performance base with our nutrition team. So it's not unheard of that they're already seeking some of that help anyways. Um, and if not, you know, like Derek said, having the network to make sure that you can find somebody and someone you trust at that. But at the end of the day, like every other profession, there's some bad ones out there. So make sure you find somebody you can actually trust who's going to give these good advice for these clients because if it is an issue, they're going to be able to kind of really seek it out and like really figure out what we need to do. And they're going to also communicate that with you. And so now you're working together as a team more than anything. Suggestions for a PT or PTA attempting to get into an education position. Any recommendations on how to pursue this? Uh, network, reach out to the people, especially in your area. If there are particular schools, uh, send emails to those individuals, attempt to meet them, buy them coffee, go to conferences. Uh, a lot of the education individuals do attend things like the combined sections meeting. Uh, believe it or not, they are in fact people and behave as such and are typically more than happy if another person comes and says hello to them. I've amazingly met many people using that exact method. Follow me for more tips and tricks. Uh, I, I think we often put people on a pedestal and don't want to approach them because of some title associated with them. Uh, people are going to people. We should go meet as many as we can. And if you want to get into the education side, it is, well, in most things in life, it's who you know, not what you know. So, 
What do you think are the best ways to quote unquote assist other clinicians in developing their communication abilities about pain? Uh, attend the barbell medicine pain and rehab course. <laughs> Step one. <laughs> yes. Uh, it, it depends on the clinician because really it's about sparking interest in reflecting on why you do what you do. And that interest isn't sparked in the same way in everyone. If that were the case, it would be easy to write this like algorithm of changing behaviors. But what we know is the biggest steps are establishing a rapport. Once again, nobody or very rarely is someone's mind ever changed by someone they don't like. And then, you know, in a non-threatening manner, having a conversation about why they believe what they believe that you, know, you can get into the, on a scale of zero to a hundred, how much do you think what you're saying in regards to pain science communication is correct? 70%. Well, why not 80? Why not 60? Start having some reflective conversations on that. And if you can get them or get even me to start reflecting on why we're doing what we're doing, then there's a lot more likelihood that you're going to end up having someone reflect on this a little bit more. Uh, I still think the there is a very missing component to paying neuroscience education and that education implies it's a one-way street. Like it, it should be communication and getting more comfortable having a dialogue instead of a monologue. Yeah. I mean, I think also you have to look at it how we communicate with patients as well. Like we're not just coming at them immediately saying, hey, your view of this is completely wrong. Like we're kind of easing into it for the most part. And most of the time with a clinician, especially somebody who's been in it for a long time and they learn, say they've been in it for 20 years, you're not changing their mind overnight. And that's for sure. Um, I've had a few of these conversations, especially in the chiropractic world. Like that's like pulling teeth most of the time. And so you think about that, like it's about kind of planting that seed and letting it grow for the most part, just like we kind of treat with patients as well. It's about planting that seed kind of getting that graded exposure to that information, allowing them to come to those terms themselves, and then almost getting them to come back to you and start asking questions, because then that's where the real growth of that actually truly happens. Um, so I think that's you know kind of one way to approach it as well, is look at it how we also talk to patients or clients about pain. That's still a human as a clinician as well. So why does it have to change aggressively outside of, you know, we may not like how they talk to people, but, we can't just change that in a week. We can't change that in a year, probably. But we can at least start changing small things throughout, like over time for the most part. <clears throat> Surgeon despises leg extension seven to eight months out from an ACL reconstruction. What do? Quad index of 65%. I would do leg extensions. <laughs> um, I, I think... Not to sound overly callous here, but I'm sure this one will be my hot take. Uh, when they start picking graphs, or sorry, when I start picking graphs, they can start picking exercises. Uh, I, we are the specialists when it comes to this. All the evidence says that knee extensions are safe. Uh, if you have your patient's best interest in mind and they're a 65% quad index, I would likely be doing some open chain knee extensions. Uh, uh, once again, this, this gets back to the behavior change side of it because obviously there's a belief in place there that has led to this being 
dictated. Uh, try and build a relationship with your surgeon if you don't have one. Have some conversations saying this is why we're doing what we're doing. And uh, I'm willing to bet if you start turning in some athletes that have 90% LSIs, all of a sudden those uh, will be like, oh, maybe maybe this is an okay thing to do. So you show your work and allow them to see the results. That's also a big component of it. But yeah, I don't got much else to add. <laughs> do weight loss and exercise actually help target pain, or do they just make you healthier and more capable? Why are we oaring an and? It's you know, it can assist with pain, but it also typically makes you more capable and healthier. Like if we look at things like the Nyberg study on staving off chronic disease, it's meeting physical activity guidelines, not a specific type of physical activity. It's, you know, are you getting moderate level physical activity and are you doing muscle strengthening activities two times a week? Everything from once again, LARPing to resistance or to powerlifting, so long as you're getting some cardio in meets that criteria. Having a BMI under 25 was the second one. So it's not that you, know, you need this very rigid structured diet. It's just, you know, there are certain things that tend to favor you in that direction. And then not smoking, which I don't think should come as a surprise to anyone. And then alcohol in moderation. If you meet those four criteria, you're going to stave off chronic disease on average by 10 years uh, it's not something to where and i think we need to probably stop looking at exercise to say it targets pain because uh, that's not really how it works it can help reframe the experience that someone is having while they're in pain but it's not like uh, a knee extension targets the certain neuroreceptor and all of a sudden uh, we have solved patellofemoral pain syndrome it's not how it works. Uh, but, you know, if you can get people more active and show them that they actually are capable, then it's just a positive feedback loop, I would say. Uh, but There's definitely a component from, like, if you want to nerd out, the, the body fat, that capacity side of things drives some low-level chronic inflammation that can, you know, tend to... Uh, increase the general nociceptive activity in the system, and so that's probably one of at least one of the mechanisms by which um, obesity and, and adiposity and chronic pain relate. Um, there is an impact on the general nociceptive system, but to the extent that weight loss and fat loss occur, it's definitely more than just before that mechanism. Like the process that people go through to achieve that has a lot of other impacts on them psychologically, physiologically, in a ton of other ways, right? So it's not like uh, I would not, for example, I would not expect the same outcome if somebody um, did a bunch of increased physical activity and changed their dietary pattern and lost some body fat that way, insofar as it would affect some sort of persistent pain, pain state versus if you just like liposuction them or something like that, right? <laughs> the, the starting and ending points are not the things that define that difference, rather the process probably defines it, even if there is some impact biologically, you know, through adipose inflammation, nociceptor activity, but that's like a fraction of it. So, you can nerd out on that kind of mechanism as much as you want, but the way you get there probably has pretty significant impacts on the outcomes that you get to. I feel like now the uh, Q&A gets to say, 
Pain and Rehab featuring Austin. Is the, <laughs> no, you're like the hook from a 90s rap song. Like, you are the jaw rule. Just don't, please don't host a festival anytime soon. So, knowing low back pain is multifaceted, what's the biggest indication mental and psychological issues may be playing a role for the person? Uh, it turns out it's really hard to live your life without mental and psychological issues playing a role in everything you do. Uh, it, once again, this is a question of degrees. You know, there are tools that, like the OSPRO or the Start Back tool, which could clue you in that you may need to have a little bit harder or involved conversations regarding some beliefs around anxiety, depression, injuries. But in the grand scheme of things, uh, even if you are handling things to the best of your ability uh, in the most ideal situation, you still have some mental and psychological components to that. It's just yours probably slant a little bit more on what we would consider a positive adaptation than a negative adaptation. Uh, but, you know, back to the question, like, what's the biggest issue that brings you here today? If the answer involves, I am scared to do, odds are you might have something that you need to talk to them about. Why are you scared? How can we help you be less scared? Or like, even <laughs> how, how can we assist you in doing the things you want to do to where we show you you are capable of more than what you thought you were capable of? And there may still be like limitations to that too, which is once again goes back to those friendships you can create with other providers. Like having a very good mental health like provider that you can refer to or at least bounce ideas off of can make a significant difference, especially like, I mean, we have multiple clients that we were like, hey, we, like at this point, you just need to go see somebody for your mental health. And then you can come back to us once that's kind of been worked on. Because at the end of the day, like you can tell it's a very large component to actually what's going on. And it is a barrier for them to actually progress. So like having those connections, once again, goes right back to how can we find these providers that also assist in our care? Because at the end of the day, you're gonna see patients like that. Like it doesn't matter what setting you're in, whether you're cash-based, hospital-based, like whatever, it doesn't matter. Like you're gonna see these, especially in, you know, potentially even some like low-income areas. Like when insurance is a really, really big thing or just like any assistance programs, like at the end of the day, especially having some connections in that field, it's going to be absolutely huge. And so utilizing those can truly elevate your care and make the best situation for that patient at the same time. Because we can't fix everything, so why act like we can when we have other providers for that reason? So that's also something to consider. You can go first on this one. This one? Yep. How do you manage pain that occurs after the event, lifting, activity, etc., and not during? Well, I'd probably say, obviously, if you already know the pain's happening afterwards, we kind of have to reflect back on what we did in that session and then realize, okay, where can we already start making some changes post-session? Because is it pain going into the next session or is it just right afterwards? If it's just right afterwards, okay, when we get into our next session, how can I alter that to see how we can change things? Do we need to change range of motion? Do we need to change eccentric tempos, concentric tempos? Do we need to just change our exercise selection in general? At the end of the day, trying to put a square peg into a round hole to 
does not always work. So why are we trying to force those things? We see that it hurts afterwards. Like, are we just gonna go insane and keep trying it and then hope it just works eventually? That doesn't make any sense. So, I mean, I think it's really about reflecting on really your programming, especially if it's programming based. If it's activity based, what's your intensity? Like, are you playing basketball and you're playing for three hours? I mean, of course you're gonna be exhausted and you're probably in a little bit of discomfort. So, once again, let's manage our load. Like, you kind of have to start and kind of go through that checklist of what can I do, what can I change, and then you have to test it. That's the only way that you're gonna know is testing. And if you see, oh, it was 12 hours instead of a day later, maybe we're on the right track already. If not, then what else can I change? So it's about that checklist of going through these things. Yeah, I agree with all that. Uh, what are some useful topics that you think are lacking in the rehab curriculum that would be useful in your opinion to be useful? Uh, if there isn't a, a blanket statement to this because every curriculum is different. Like, I can't compare school X to school Y to school A to school B because there's going to be strengths and weaknesses everywhere. Yeah, you know, I, I feel like this is one of those like blankets that's like wants me to say like strength and conditioning is what's lacking in exercise prescription. And yes, I I do believe that, and yes, it plays out in the evidence. But I also uh, have zero doubt that there is a at least a decent number of schools that probably have an awesome Therex program. Uh, I probably don't know about them because guess what? If you're doing your job and things are going great, you typically don't end up on my radar as much. And so I think it would be great if as a blanket, we were talking about dosing and intensity or, you know, flipping the script from pain neuroscience education to communicating with individuals and how to actually sit down and have a conversation, we would be better off. But I'm also 100% positive there are schools that do that already. Uh, I, I know the schools that I can speak to their curriculum, even ones where I know the faculty and hold in relatively high regard still are full of BS stuff. Like I, I legit had a lecture about blue and pink kinesio tape being cooling and warming in school. Like I know for a fact they're still teaching very antiquated exercise prescription at the school that I attended. But I think I, I, I oscillate between how much I think it is this absolute thing because really it is always that conversation. Like it, if you look at individuals or if you look at PT schools, about five, I think to 8% of physical therapists are sports physical therapists. So do we need to have entire lectures on power training and increasing aerobic capacity or, you know, getting into the minutia of throwing mechanics in the athletic realm? If that small of a percentage is going to be the ones seeing that day in day out i don't know like it, it i get the case on the other side of being a generalist and saying hey if this is something you're highly interested in maybe we should look for it elsewhere 
Uh, I do think PT schools should uh, junk teaching a lot of passive modalities, uh, but that's in a different conversation in and of itself. So I, I think these days curriculums are meeting bare minimum standards, but it is so easy to make connections to raise the bar and surround yourself with people that you can learn from and communicate with. Once again, uh, it's really easy to say hi to a person. And most of said people are willing to have conversations about how they got where they are and their thought process. So there's that. I mean, from like a, just a Cairo school perspective, obviously that was more of a PT based question, but you know, Cairo's at the end of the day have a lot to work on. You know, a lot of schools PT, a lot to work on, but I can tell you from experience, obviously, because I'm a chiropractor, that especially the school I went to has a lot to work on. And I can't even express the amount that it needs to work on. But in general, you know, the, there's a smaller amount of Cairo programs throughout the world anyways. But we're still in so much of this old school thought process. And we're still a very new profession at the end of the day. Like it was like 1895 or something. I probably have friends who would, you know, completely disown me for not knowing that date. But at the end of the day, that's great because I don't care about that date at all. All I care about is the fact that I missed a lot of information in school that I wish I would have got. And the only reason I have gotten it is because, like Derek said, I made connections outside of school. Like that is by far one of the best things I ever did was not getting completely immersed in my schooling. That's probably the only reason I even get to talk here today, which is awesome. <laughs> and Austin's over there laughing at that because he knows that's a fact. <laughs> it's like, at the end of the day, like, Kairos could just do better just getting general knowledge about movement, and, you know, that's not spine-based and changing how your spine is aligned. Like, at the end of the day, I just want you to go do something. Like, if we just get that information, then we're we're already changing our curriculum for the better. And then it's going to take us even longer to catch up. So at the end of the day, in my opinion, PTs are far, far above us. But that's also, you know, just my opinion because I also went to a super conservative school. So I got to see the very, very old school thought process. And luckily there are schools out there that are starting to work into that. And we're seeing more chiros become involved with actual rehab work and start kind of going against those narratives that are completely indoctrinated into our brains for about four years. Um, so yeah, I mean, from a chiro perspective, I think we have a ton to work on. I can't even name you a list at this point. There's so much. <laughs> Is there merit to increased blood flow helping in healing an injury, for example, 30 plus reps or other ways to pump blood or quote, pump blood into the area, unquote. No. <laughs> I, in the grand scheme of things, like set rep schemes for treating someone experiencing pain don't matter as much so long as they are appropriately anchored to intensity and even then, it, they don't need to be pain-free, but increasing blood flow, helping in healing an injury, I mean, go for a walk. Uh, it, there's this 
trope with a lot of modalities. It's like, well, we need to decrease inflammation or we need to increase blood flow. And it's like, well, move a little bit. And it turns out that increases some blood flow. I mean, unless you have a, like clot, you're getting plenty of blood there anyway. Yeah. It is. I, I think these are tropes that are very easy to say because at surface level, it makes some sense. And then the, the second that you start reflecting on it, you're like, I don't know. I mean, why 30 plus reps? I mean, if you want to catch a pump, you do you, but it's not going to help heal an injury. And if anything, like once again, if we're assuming that there is some tissue damage, I don't know that training to failure is the best way to uh, approach that, but you know, is it 30 reps of body weight? Is it 30 reps at RPE 10 or like, uh, how are, how are we anchoring this? So yeah, I got nothing to add to that. <laughs> it, it, not, not 30 more reps. <laughs> it, if I'm training to rehab a muscle injury or strain, is it necessary that the exercises I do be pain-free? No, uh, not at all. It, I here in the grand scheme of things, it's really comes down to like how much is tolerable for the person. That is not a carte blanche statement to like go YOLO every session. But if you anchor everything to it being pain free, you're likely straying way too conservative in your dosing. And especially for something with a uh, like a muscle strain injury, like you need to be leaning into getting stronger and dosing accordingly. So I wouldn't expect it to be uh, sunshine and rainbows the entire time. I, I think too often when we anchor the way we should be feeling to like, oh, this this feels great all the time, and like that's not how life works. And if the expectation was we're going to have some fluctuations, occasionally we're going to experience some symptoms, that's okay. It's part of the process. It would probably be easier to walk along with the process. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, like, I should almost expect some sort of discomfort, at least in some minor capacity. Because if you're not, like, we're not even really stressing the area that well. So how do we expect it to, you know, really become more tolerable to that movement or that stress? until we expose it to that stress. So yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, as long as it's within that tolerable range, like, I want that. And you gotta be upfront with people about that because people are scared of that. It's like, yeah, there is a, probably a fine line for a lot of people, but if you explain that like it's okay, like maybe you're gonna have some increased symptoms afterwards, but as long as they start working their way down, that's what we're doing. Like, we need that. That's basically the entire point of why you're here. Is we're helping you get that graded exposure back to movement, and that's that's really about it. <laughs> For the people that are or have a propensity to overshoot, instead of anchoring RPE to could you do two more reps or could you do two more or three more reps, it's like should you do two more reps? Should you do three more reps? Like because in the grand scheme of things, we know it's a bad decision. <laughs> It's just we have a lot of trouble being honest with ourselves when we're making the bad decisions. It's like, what is it? We judge other people by their actions and ourselves by our intentions. And then we get surprised that our stupid actions end up coming to bite us in the end. It's like, well, 
yeah, I, I, I hurt for three days, but I did it. Like <laughs> that, that doesn't make it any worse of a decision. It just means that you survived. Like, congratulations. So, uh, how do I convince my friend to take his back rehab more seriously? How are you going to do that, Cam? Oh, teach I mean, me ways. At the end of the day, you try to convince family and friends. Like, it's about meeting them where they are already. And then at the end of the day, it's going to take a long time, more than likely, for them to truly accept what a lot of your opinion is because they're close to you. That's one of the hardest populations you can work with, in my opinion. Like, hands down. Like, I, you know, one, one big thing is over COVID, I had the pleasure of being able to help my dad learn to squat again. And he's never been able to do that my entire life until COVID, basically. And it took me, what is that, 26 years of my life to be able to realize, like, oh, he just said that because he was scared. And then we got him squatting almost 200 pounds for reps very soon. But, I mean, at the end of the day, that man, he would do everything it took in order to get, like, you get up and down out of a chair. But, you know, you put a bar on his back or something like that, all of a sudden his knees can't handle that. And so you think about that and you go, it took me, you know, obviously from about 18 to 26, so about eight years to actually convince him to do that. But that's a long time to sit there and say, like, I can't do these movements. And I haven't done them since he was in his 20s, basically. So, like, if you look at it like that, that's obviously a very close relative. From a friend perspective, once again, you have to find out, okay, well, why are you not taking it seriously? Like, where's your motivation to not take it seriously? Or, you know, what are you lacking right now? Like, at the end of the day, why, why would you not want to get better? You know, pose these questions of making them reflect on, what do you mean you don't want to get better or you don't want to take it seriously? Because do you just want to be in pain or do you just not want to do things? Like, you have to figure out why they're so hesitant to actually take it seriously and put it to work. Because, you know, just sitting around, you may feel good because you're not doing anything, but the minute you go back to the activity that maybe caused the pain, what if it comes back up and it's still just as bad? So where, where's, your, where's your line of, okay, now's the time I'm going to feel better? Like, you just have to meet them where they are at that point and then gradually continue to kind of whisper in their ear a little bit and keep saying, like, hey, let's do this, let's do this, let's do this. And show them, like, also, especially in a rehab profession, this is what you guys do every day. Like, why do they not trust you? Is there something different there just because they're a friend? Like, why are they not listening to you and say, take it seriously? Is there something in the background that you don't know about? Maybe? I don't know. Why not kind of sort that relationship out to begin with anyways? So, there's a lot of options here. How would you approach it? I would say it's up to the friend to figure out they're going to take their back rehab more seriously. More seriously. <laughs> I mean, if it, if it were one of my friends, I would probably just say, hey, man, I'm here. Would you need me? Yeah. And because in the grand scheme of things, if you're not, if the person isn't willing to change or doesn't want to change or is happy living their life in their current state, like, I don't know that I feel inclined to beat that drum anymore. And I tend to have the stance of, I'm here if you need me. I'm happy to help out. Uh, whatever we're ready to take it seriously or whatever you're ready to address this, that's fine. 
uh, I'm pretty notorious amongst my own friends of taking that approach. And then when they start complaining about it, I like, are you going to listen to what I say this time around? No. Okay. Then I'm not talking about this today. Yeah. And just put that boundary there because I, I can't tell you off. And it's like, well, I just want to complain to you about this for 30 minutes, but I'm not going to do anything about it. And like, if that makes you feel better, I'm here for it. But if you're asking me for my opinion, you're not going to listen to it. That means you don't value my opinion. Yeah. So I'm not going to share it with you until I think that you actually value what's coming out of my mouth. If I feel pain or discomfort, is it better to reduce RPE, reps, or sets? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, and it depends. Yes. Uh, or, or, just a thought, maybe be more honest with RPE. We're back to that should-could conversation. Uh, I would say in the grand scheme of things without any context whatsoever. You know, if you're telling me, if you're feeling pain and discomfort and you're running three by 15 RPE nine, like you might want to change reps and RPE. If you're running uh, three by six RPE two, well, uh, we'll probably got some other conversations to be like, without any anchor to this, it, it's hard to say what I would change or what I wouldn't. Uh, just at face value, these types of questions normally have a, I'm overshooting. I know that I'm overshooting, but I want someone to tell me that I'm not overshooting. And my recommendation there is ask yourself, should you be doing the thing that is causing the discomfort at the current intensity that you are doing the thing? What is your approach to treating chronic, ten chronic tendinopathy? Been dealing with elbow pain during bench and overhead press for over a year. I mean, it's the same as the approach to a lot of pain issues. You know, find the entry point, see if we can make some adjustments to bench or overhead press, or if we need to change out the exercises. Uh, typically for an elbow tendinopathy, we are going to do some type of direct work on that area, be it you know wrist flexion extension, depending on if it's medial or lateral. Uh, without knowing, and this gets back to a lot of these questions that are a little bit more diagnostic. Like, there's a lot more variables that would need to be in play before I would really say, like, if you've just been trying to bench and overhead press through it, well then we're probably just going to start by seeing if we can alter what's going on. Like, I don't know, break out the football bar every now and then. But if you've been trying to manage by adjusting your load, changing your range of motion, you know, all the things that are typically recommended, then we might have a little bit more of a complex conversation about what needs to go on. Yep. Context is kind of a big deal there. And if you've just been grinding bench and overhead press and not seeing results, then why not try something else? Just because you love it and you want to do it all the time. Maybe you have to kind of pull back from that for a little bit. Do some stuff you don't necessarily enjoy all the time, but maybe different. And then gradually start working your way back in. But at the end of the day, without a real context of, is his RPE too high? Is he doing a ton of volume and not 
you know, his recovery is not great at all. Like, there's just too many variables to account for without knowing it for the most part. Thinking about chronic low back pain, for example, is pain due to an oversensitive protection mechanism from the brain? No. Can I stop there? Uh, what what is what is a sufficiently sensitive protection mechanism? I, I need to know those parameters before I can call something over or under. Then how are we measuring that? Like I, this is, I, I think one of those questions that it gets at some of the like pain analogy side of it, and you know sometimes I, I think having discussion of like you are more sensitive or to use the good old that alarm system is going off a little bit too often is fine but is it due to an oversensitive no it is more complex than that like it is due to multiple factors everything from socioeconomic status to whatever tissue changes may have occurred to prior beliefs to pick something uh, you know none of this especially pain does not exist in a vacuum it's not that we can pinpoint it to this one thing and if we can calm down the protection mechanism then things feel better and this is i guess part of my beef with the these are the eight to twelve metaphors that are used all the time is because we've basically traded jelly donuts for alarm systems at this point. But it's not an alarm system in a car because we are not cars. That is your take home message today. You know, the analogies and metaphors are always gonna be unique to the person in front of you. But I think if we spent just, I don't know, a picosecond longer thinking about some of the metaphors and analogies we use, we would see how quickly they fall apart and how much people anchor to them. Like it is that question of like that you ask patients, like, so what did you get from our discussion today? Well, my alarm system is going off and I need to calm it down. And like, we might need to revisit some of what was said earlier today. I don't have anything else to add to that, that's for sure. <laughs> I basically covered that. All right. Uh, I believe that was the end of our Q&A. I thank you guys all for coming. We'll hang around for a little bit if you have questions. Uh, otherwise, come see us wherever we are next time. Thank you, guys. Thank you. All right, that's a wrap on episode 210 of the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Special thanks to our pain and rehab team for recording the audio. Uh, if this event sounds like something you'd be interested in, whether it's to get CEUs for your physical therapy license, maintaining your personal training certification, or just for your own knowledge, we'll be announcing the next pain and rehab live event very soon. We do have two live health and performance seminars. That's our traditional two-day seminar that Dr. Baraki and I uh, put on with the help of Leah Lutz, Tom Campitelli, and additional staff. Uh, one is coming up in Atlanta. That's in about a week. And the second one is in Brooklyn, New York in May. Uh, links to that are in the description below. If you want to attend, come hang out with us, lift with us. 
be a good time. We'd love to have you. Uh, so yeah, check those out. Uh, we've got new merch over at the Barbell Medicine website, Barbell Medicine Lifting Club stuff. Our flags are selling out, but as far as I know, we still have a few left. So get those before they're gone. Please leave us a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts from so we can uh, keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. From everyone here at Barbell Medicine, thanks for tuning in, and we'll catch you next week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast.